0: And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Uh, Today we're going to be diving into God's Word. Uh, We have been looking over the past week at the miracle of Jesus Christ's birth. And so today I'm going to share with you part three in this series I'm calling The Miracle of the Incarnation. The third and final uh, message in this short series we've been doing over the past eight days. I have a question for you. How many of you have a nativity set set up in your home, a manger scene set up at home somewhere? How many of you? Probably a lot of you. Uh, Many Christians, including my own family, we have nativity sets set up in our family rooms or somewhere in our home this time of year. And probably your nativity set looks something like this. On one side, you've got a few shepherds. Uh, Oftentimes, there's a little sheep at the foot of one of those shepherds, maybe a little lamb over one of the shepherd's shoulders. On the other side, you've got a few of the wise men. Normally, there's three in a manger scene, and usually they're holding the gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Oftentimes in the manger scene, you'll see an angel in the background. For some reason, the angel usually looks depressed. I'm not quite sure why, but that's how they make them. And then in the center, the focal point, you've got Mary and Joseph. And then between them, the baby Jesus, they're resting in the manger. And a lot of times, like in this manger scene, Jesus's arms are up in the air like this, as if he's saying, hey, everybody, I'm here. And so that's the manger scene. That's The nativity set. Uh, Millions of Christians around the world set these up every single Christmas season so that their family and friends get to be reminded of the true meaning of of Christmas. They want to remind those around them about the miracle of Jesus' birth. And when we look at this manger scene, every character in this manger scene was part of that miracle on that first Christmas This morning, we're going to take a a closer look at several of the characters that are part of this manger scene. Uh, Two nights ago on Christmas Eve, hopefully you joined us, we took a look at Mary and and Joseph, and we saw that they were unimpressive individuals. Uh, They were nobodies. Uh, They were not the ones you would expect to give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They were, in the eyes of most people, insignificant. And they hailed from an insignificant town of Nazareth. And so today we're going to look at a few other characters. We're going to look at the shepherds and we're going to look at the wise men. We're going to take a closer look at these characters in the manger scene. And I want to suggest to you that there's a question that we should ask that we tend not to ask at Christmas time. We pass these manger scenes all the time. We set them up in our homes every Christmas, and we don't stop to ask this important question. Why? Why? Of all the people on earth, God could have chosen to be in the manger scene. Why did he choose these people? God knew that for over a thousand years, his followers would be setting up these manger scenes each and every Christmas. And on that first Christmas, God had the opportunity to handpick who would be in the manger scene. So I've got a question. Why on earth did he pick these losers? (laughs) Why did he pick Mary and Joseph? Why did he pick the shepherds? Why did he pick these astrologers, these sorcerers from Iraq? Why did he do that? God could have chosen wealthy, well-educated parents but he didn't. Instead, he chose Joseph and Mary who hailed from this town of Nazareth. Nazareth would make Victorville look like Beverly Hills. It wasn't a great town. God could have summoned doctors and engineers and civic leaders to be a part of the manger scene, but he didn't. Instead, he chose these dudes covered in dirt and sheep smut because they hung out with sheep all the time. Why did he choose them? God could have chosen Jewish rabbis and Bible scholars to be a part of the manger scene, but he didn't. Instead, he invited these pagan astrologers, these guys that were like soothsayers and fortune tellers from Iraq. Why would he do that? I want you to take a moment and imagine with me what this manger scene would look like if God had done it right. Imagine with me. If God had done it right, the the angel can stay. The angel's okay. But let's scrub the manger scene of all these other characters. Shouldn't Jesus have had a mom and dad, maybe who were wealthy, uh, of a, a noteworthy family that were in great standing in the synagogue and in great standing with the religious leaders in Jerusalem? Wouldn't it have made sense if God didn't have the astrologers there but instead had the Jewish rabbis and those that were in synagogue every week? And and speaking of synagogue every week, we're going to see today that these shepherds hardly ever went to synagogue. Wouldn't it make sense for God to to bring in maybe some doctors, maybe some scientists, maybe some of the upper echelon that were in good standing with the synagogue? Instead, he brings in the dirty shepherds. Why did God do this? Well, it's all part of the miracle of the incarnation. I'm reminded of what God says about himself in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And to that we say, Amen. Well, this morning, as we take a final look at the miracle of the Incarnation, we're going to take a closer look at the shepherds and the wise men. Why did God choose them to come and worship the newborn king? And let's start with the shepherds. So if you're there in your Bibles, you need to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 4. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is how God's Word reads. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared, watching sheep 24-7 was just slightly more exciting than watching grass grow, (laughs) especially if you were a shepherd watching sheep outside of Bethlehem. You see, the sheep grazing between Jerusalem and Bethlehem were almost entirely for the purpose of being sacrificed. Bethlehem was only about six miles from Jerusalem, so it was a convenient place uh, to breed and to raise sheep that were needed for temple sacrifice. So having healthy young sheep near Jerusalem was critical. And these shepherds served a purpose. Shepherding was a necessary job, but it definitely wasn't a very pleasant. It definitely wasn't a very glamorous job. Shepherds worked crazy long hours that kept them away from the synagogues on Saturday mornings. Even when they were off duty, they were almost always ceremonially unclean because after all, they delivered newborn sheep with their bare hands and they were constantly in contact with sheep poop and sheep pee. You know, these guys were constantly ceremonially unclean according to Jewish ceremonial laws. And so shepherds were at the bottom of the social ladder in Jewish society. They were at the bottom. At the time of Jesus' birth, uh, Jewish shepherds were not allowed to be members of synagogues. They weren't even counted as full men uh, when the census was taken across the Roman world. Uh, and so, men, if you've ever felt like half a man, you, you kind of understand what these shepherds felt like on a daily basis in their culture. Uh, ladies, if you've ever felt like when you enter a room, no one even knows if you're there, you kind of understand what uh, these shepherds felt like in those days. Now imagine the scene. It's dark. There's just a little bit of light out on the fields because of the moon shining that night. The shepherds are sitting there like every other night, seeing the silhouettes of those sheep out in front of them. And everything they saw, everything they heard, everything they sensed led them to believe this, this, this was just going to be yet another boring night out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. But then, boom! All of a sudden, this creature appears before the shepherds. And one glance at that creature, they know this guy ain't human. This guy is superhuman. This angel, he's, he's shining with a brilliance that they couldn't even describe. And the way he talked was unlike any human voice they'd ever heard. And so these guys are scared to death. Now, most of you think that you can't understand the original language the New Testament was written in. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, specifically Koine Greek. So most of you think you don't know any Koine Greek, but I'm going to show you right now that you know more Koine Greek than you might have thought. It says here that these guys were terrified. That word terrified is a translation of two Greek words in the original. Here are those two Greek words. Megasphobos. You know what that means, don't you? Uh, Phobos, obviously, that's the word from which we get our words phobia. You know, think hydrophobia, someone who is afraid of water, arachnophobia, someone who's afraid of spiders, tithophobia, someone who's afraid of someone at church asking you to give your tither offering. You get the idea. And then megas evidently, you know, clearly means big, huge. And so these guys are really, really afraid. That's the term that is used here. These guys are scared to death. They are megas- Phobos. In verse 10, the angel speaks these words. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. The angel speaks the same words to these shepherds that he had spoken to Mary. When he had told her some nine months earlier that she was going to give birth to the Christ child, do not be afraid. It's the most common thing that an angel will say to people in scripture, because whenever an angel appears, if that angel isn't just disguised in human form, if that angel just kind of shows up. The most common reaction in human beings is absolute terror. And so we find this over and over again in Scripture. The angel has to start out by saying, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We have to understand that when angels are not taking human form, they don't look like Tinkerbell. Okay? (laughs) This is not a a pleasant, cute little creature. This thing is intimidating. Angels uh, do not look like cute little fairies. They are intimidating creatures. They are powerful creatures. And so Gabriel appears... We believe it's Gabriel appears to the shepherds here and he tells them, do not be afraid. He gives them that message, good news of great joy. All the people today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. After the angel delivers that message to the shepherds, immediately the hillsides erupt. It says with a great company of heavenly host. That's what it says in verse 13. Now this word host is a military term. It's a military term for a band of soldiers. So Luke is saying that there was an army of angels that suddenly appeared and filled the fields outside of Bethlehem. So imagine the scene. Thousands of angel warriors in all of their glory filling the hillsides and glorifying and praising God for the birth of Jesus Christ. So if one angel warrior wasn't intimidating enough, In the blink of an eye, thousands of angel warriors surrounded the shepherds. It's a miracle that the shepherds didn't pass out. It's an absolute miracle. In verse 11, the lead angel proclaims three of Jesus' titles. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord. Now, most of the time when we read this passage, we just kind of skim past verse 11 and don't really think much about it. But I want us to savor those titles of Jesus. Let's look at each of them quickly. First of all, the angel says Jesus is Savior. That word Savior is a translation of the Greek word uh, soter. And soter means he saves, he delivers, he makes us safe, and he makes us alive. Isn't that true of Jesus Christ? He does all those things. He saves us. He delivers us. He makes us safe. He makes us alive. And that deserves an amen, don't you think? Amen. Number two, Jesus is the Christ. It's the second title that the angel identifies in verse 11. The Greek word used here is Christos. And that word Christos in the Greek is in the Hebrew the word Messiah. Messiah and Christ, it's just the same word. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Hebrew. Excuse me, Christ is Greek. And so that word Christ means Messiah, and both Messiah and Christ mean he is the anointed one. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying that Jesus is the anointed one. Now, this term anointed one may not mean much to you and me, but it meant an awful lot to the Jewish people 2,000 years ago and even today. You see, in Judaism, there were three types of people in the Old Testament who would typically be anointed with oil. You see, oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So there were these three types of people who would be anointed with oil. First of all, the Jewish prophets, when they were anointed with oil, that oil symbolically represented that they were being anointed to speak God's words. They were being anointed with the Holy Spirit to speak God's word truthfully. Then secondly, were the Jewish priests. They were anointed with oil to signify that they had God's blessing to make atonement for people's sins by officiating the sacrifices. And then finally, Jewish kings were anointed with oil to signify that they had God-given authority to rule and to judge. And so chew on this for a sec. In Old Testament times, every true prophet, priest, and king was an anointed one. But not a single prophet, priest, or king was ever called the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. The Jews knew that this was a title reserved for the coming king of the Jews. So why would the king of the Jews be the anointed one? Here's why. Because the Messiah would be the only man in history who would be anointed by God as prophet, priest, And King, all three, rolled in to one. He'd be the only one in history. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, the nation of Israel had over a thousand years of history, during which time dozens of anointed kings and dozens of anointed prophets and thousands of anointed priests had lived and died, but the Jewish people were anticipating the coming of the anointed one the one who would come and once and for all set up a earthly kingdom that would be eternal the anointed one to come once and for all to per, to usher in a permanent priesthood and a permanent uh, a prophetic ministry and a permanent kingdom now consider this on that first christmas night when jesus was born and the angels went out into those fields to have a chat with the shepherds On that night, not a single anointed prophet in Israel would have walked out into that field and had a conversation with those shepherds. Not a single anointed priest would have been caught dead out in those fields with those shepherds. They were unclean. A priest would never be with those unclean shepherds. And not a single anointed king, if there had been one, would have dared given those shepherds the time of day. But the one who came as the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, sent some of the most powerful angels from heaven to go out into the fields and to give a personal VIP invitation to those shepherds that no other prophet, priest, or king would have ever wanted to talk to. Huh. Isn't that something? That's just like Jesus. Jesus Is the Anointed One? He is the Christ. Finally, there in verse eleven, the angel says that Jesus is Lord. That word "Lord" typically just means master, but the context makes it clear that this is referring to the way "Lord" is used of God in the Old Testament. And remember that word "Lord" in the in the Old Testament, used thousands of times, is a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, the holiest. Name of God. So what is the angel saying? Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. The angel in essence is saying, make no mistake about it, shepherds. I don't want you to misunderstand who you're going to see this night. He is the one who can and will save you from your sins. He is Savior. He is the one who can and will and is Be the anointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And I want you to understand that he is the one who not only is prophet, priest, and king, he is God in the flesh. He is Yahweh himself. And so that wonderful announcement to the shepherds, go and see the Savior. Go and see the Christ. Go and see the Lord. And so in verse 20, the shepherds after going and seeing Jesus with their own two eyes, left and returned to the fields, telling everyone on the way who would listen what they had been told by the angels and what they had seen when they saw Jesus. And it says in verse 20, they were glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, I want you to take a look at what we learn about the Magi, the wise men in Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. This is what we read. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, and stop there for just a moment, don't make the mistake of thinking the magi, the wise men, were there on the night Jesus was born. Jesus was in the house by the time they arrived. And he was not a baby anymore. He was a child. So in all likelihood, the Magi didn't arrive to worship Jesus until he was at least a few months old, possibly as much as a year old. Picking up again in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Matthew is the only gospel writer who tells us about the Magi. None of the other gospel writers do. And so what we just read here in the first 12 verses of Matthew 2 is all we know about the Magi's visit. Traditionally, these men have been called wise men, but more literally, they were Magi. That's the word used here. So we have to ask, what's a Magi? Well, magi is a translation of the Greek word magos, and this word magos is the word from which we get our English word magic. So the magi were originally, uh, you might say, a kind of magician. Uh, they were a hereditary priesthood of the Medes. Today they're known as the Kurds in the Middle East. A man didn't become a magi. He was born a magi. The magi were credited with having great religious knowledge. After some magi proved to be experts in dream interpretation, the Persian king Darius the Great made them the heads of his state religion there in Persia. Uh, After Persia was kind of absorbed into the Parthian Empire, uh, the magi became the primary ruling class there among the Parthians. In fact, by the time of Jesus' birth, the Magi had become king-makers. And so, you've heard the old uh, Christmas carol, We Three Kings, from Orient Are. Uh, they were not kings. They weren't from the Orient. Uh, these Magi were king-makers from, in all likelihood, modern-day Babylon, from the Parthian Empire. So, who were these Magi who came from the East to worship Jesus. Well, let's put this up on the screen here for you. The Magi were most likely kingmakers from the area of modern-day Iraq. They were part of the upper ruling class. They were trained in astronomy and astrology. So they weren't kings, but no one became a king in the Parthian Empire without the Magi's blessing. These guys really liked to study horoscopes. They found meaning in everything they saw in the sky, uh, whether it was a comet or a planet or a star that was brighter than usual. Uh, They loved studying the stars and and trying to interpret them as as, uh, producing some sort of omens for those around them. Uh, But when these Magi here in Matthew 2 saw this star that had appeared when Jesus was born, uh, they knew that something about that star's appearance was connected with the birth of the King of the Jews. We don't know exactly how they knew this other than God revealed it to them. Uh, they would have been trained in, in certain types of sorcery. And so I don't know how much of this uh, mumbo jumbo was involved in them knowing that that star was connected to the king of the Jews. But one way or another, God revealed to them that the king of the Jews had been born. This word uh, magi is really only found one other place in the New Testament. It's found in Acts 13, verse 8. And it's used in reference of Elemas, the sorcerer. So make no mistake about it. These magi, in all likelihood, were not Bible-reading, God-fearing men. In all likelihood, they were pagan astrologers and sorcerers. Not exactly a group of men that we would expect God to announce the birth of the newborn king of the Jews to. But that's who he announced it to. Back in their home country, the Magi saw this new celestial phenomenon appear and somehow God showed them that that was indicative of the birth of the Jews, the King of the Jews. So they set out for the city where they believed the King of the Jews could be found, the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. They rode into town probably with a, a large entourage. Probably they did have the camels and many other attendants with them. Uh, We're told there were Magi. We're not told there were three. There were at least two. There could have been maybe 10 or 12. We're not told how many. But they show up in their entourage, and they show up and ask this question in verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come. To worship him. Now, no small commotion erupted in Jerusalem over the Magi's presence. For one, the Parthian Empire uh, was in a constant state of battle with the Roman Empire. So it's not like these guys were hailing from a, a friendly nation. The Parthians and Romans didn't like each other. And oftentimes, Israel had got caught in the middle of this, this fight between Rome and the Parthians. So King Herod uh, had been appointed king. Uh, by the emperor of Rome to be king of the Jews and so he didn't like these guys coming into town from this enemy nation saying hey we're looking for the new king of the Jews that didn't go over too well with King Herod and it was kind of freaking out everybody in Jerusalem it says that there in verse 3 they were disturbed and all of Jerusalem with them well they weren't joking were they They were pretty upset about this. They were pretty worried about this. People in town, when they heard about these guys rolling into town and asking about the new king of the Jews, they just had this feeling that, you know, something bad's about to happen here. You don't want to get on King Herod's bad side. Well, King Herod called some of the Jewish chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where this king of the Jews was to be born. And they told him, well, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5-2 says this, you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people, Israel. So the Magi mounted up and started out on their six mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They were so Close And as they headed out, they saw the star once again. And this time, according to verse 9, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. According to verse 10, they were overjoyed. And in verse 11, they did three things. They, number one, bowed down before Jesus. Number two, they worshiped Jesus. And number three, they presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and myrrh. Now, some Bible scholars have suggested that the Magi gave Jesus gold because that was a gift for a king. Some have said they gave frankincense because that was the gift of a priest. And some say they gave myrrh because myrrh would be used to anoint Jesus' body after he died as he was taken to the tomb. To prepare him for death, he was given myrrh. However you look at these gifts, one thing is clear. They were very special gifts. Now, let's ask that big question. Why did God choose to announce his son's birth to shepherds and to magi? Wouldn't it have made a whole lot more sense if God had announced his son's birth to well-respected church-going Jews instead of to shepherds who hardly ever made it to synagogue? Wouldn't it have made more sense for God to announce Jesus' birth to Jewish rabbis and Bible scholars instead of to pagan astrologers and sorcerers from Iraq? I think so. It would have made a whole lot more sense. But when you think about it, God did announce Jesus' birth to those others. He did announce his son's birth to well-respected church-going Jews. God did announce his son's birth to priests and to Old Testament scholars, but they didn't bother to show up. Can you imagine? All of those priests and religious experts in Jerusalem, just six miles away from Bethlehem, were telling the Magi where Jesus was to be born, and they didn't bother to travel the six miles themselves to see Jesus for themselves. Isn't that remarkable? They gave directions but didn't go. Huh. What a strange, strange thing. It's ironic that non-Jewish astrologers were willing to travel hundreds of miles to worship the king of the Jews, but the Jews themselves weren't willing to travel a mere six miles to do the same. It's unbelievable. So why did God choose shepherds and magi to experience the miracle of that first Christmas? I want to quickly give you four reasons why I think he chose them. Reason number one. They were willing to have their plans interrupted by God and they responded to God's interruption. When you agree, these guys had other things to do back in their homeland, but they listened to God's interruption and they were willing to change their plans in a moment to go where the Christ child was. I believe Matthew reveals at least three other reasons why God chose both the shepherds and the magi. Reason number two, they were excited about Jesus' birth. They were excited. In verse 10, we read that they were overjoyed. When was the last time that you were overjoyed when you thought of Jesus Christ coming to earth on Christmas morning? These pagan astrologers... These sorcerers, they were excited when they found Jesus. They were overjoyed. And so often we in the church demonstrate very little joy when we experience Jesus ourselves. Hmm. Reason number three. They wanted to see and worship Jesus. The Magi made it clear to King Herod that they had come to worship Jesus, and when they found Jesus, they did just that. They worshiped And the shepherds left the manger scene glorifying and praising God. They didn't come to Jesus to be entertained. They came to worship Him. Let me ask you, why do you come to church? Why are you a part of these online worship services? Do you come to be entertained? To hear some good music? To hear an engaging message? Or do you come to worship because you want to see and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Oh, don't come to be entertained. Come because you want to draw closer to the Savior of the world. And finally, number four, the fourth reason I believe God chose the shepherds and chose the Magi is because they wanted to give more than they wanted to receive. Isn't that interesting that the Magi didn't bring their Christmas list to Jesus? (laughs) Hey, Jesus, we've traveled hundreds of miles, and so we just got a few things we want for Christmas this year. No, they didn't come with a Christmas list. They came not to receive, but to give. They came bearing gifts and getting to be in the very presence of the King of the Jews and experience the pleasure of worshiping him was all the gift they needed in return. In all likelihood, over the past month, you have given a lot of thought to what gifts you would give to others in your family. Maybe what gifts you'd give to your friends as well. But let me ask you, have you given thought to what gift you can give to Jesus this Christmas? Because after all, it's his birthday. It's his birthday. So I want to suggest to you in closing a great gift idea for Jesus this Christmas season. And here it is. Give Jesus your time. Let him interrupt your schedule. Spend time with him in his word and in prayer every day. Spend time with him in a worship service every week. Spend time loving him and serving him by loving and serving those around you, especially those who, like the shepherds, are social outcasts. And those who, like the magi, are far from God. You want to give something to Jesus that will bless his heart this Christmas? Give him your time. Let him interrupt your precious schedule. Let him use you to drop what you're doing and bless those that are homeless, those that are widows, those who are orphans, those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are hurting, those who are far from God. Let him interrupt your precious schedule and allow himself to love and serve through you. Be his hands and feet this week. Love and serve Jesus by loving and serving those around you for the glory of God. Oh Lord Jesus, we do praise you and thank you for coming on Christmas morning. Thank you for that strange manger scene with these odd characters, pagans, sorcerers and dirty shepherds and a poor young woman probably only 13 or 14 years old and the young man she was engaged to that barely had 2 dimes to rub together. Lord, I thank you that you came for the outcasts. I thank you that you came for those, Lord, that may not have their, their theology all straight, but their hearts at least in the right place and they're open to what you have to teach them. Lord, I pray that we who are close to you as followers of Jesus Christ would not lack the joy this Christmas season that we need to have. We need to rejoice in you. Help us, Lord, to draw close to you, to desire to see you and worship you every day of our lives and help us to love and serve those around us because you loved and served those around you who needed you most. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to just let you know that the Bible is very clear. Jesus is your only way to be forgiven. Jesus is your only way to have a relationship with God who made you and created you. Uh, Jesus Christ is your only way to make it to heaven someday after this life. And if you realize that truth, and we like to share the ABCs, A, admit that you're a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he's your only hope to be forgiven, your only hope to go to heaven. And C, choose today to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life and begin trusting him and loving him and obeying his commands every day of your life until he calls you home to heaven. If you have that decision to make, please reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors. Their names and numbers are at the bottom of the screen. They'd love to talk with you or pray with you. And if you've made that decision today, I want to say, way to go. Your next step is to be baptized. Because in the Bible, we read that when someone was serious about accepting Christ, they were baptized to show the world my old life is buried. And as I come up out of the water, it's symbolically representing that I am washed clean because of Jesus. And I'm living a brand new life for Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk with you about setting up a time for you to be baptized. Oh, if you need prayer, you can reach out to one of us as well. And we hope that you'll stay for just a few moments as we take communion together to end this service. What a great way to end uh, this final Sunday morning service of 2021 by taking communion together. God bless you as you serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.